apart, everybody. Don't drop that fast forward button. The sponsorship roll call is about to begin. Energy Consulting Limited provides complete project management and general contracting services to a variety of private sector clients on both commercial and residential construction projects. They act as the owner's representatives through the planning, design, budgeting, scheduling, construction, and occupancy processes. Clients appreciate their open, honest, and flexible approach to achieving their project goals. Although they're located in Surrey, BC, Energy works on projects all over the province, including the growing cities of the north and the beautiful coastal towns of Vancouver Island. They're always excited to explore new places and develop relationships with professionals wherever their clients' interests may be. Abacus North is a firm that specializes in mortgage banking solutions for complex projects. In addition to providing financing solutions in a traditional mortgage broker capacity, Abacus North provides direct loans that range from $2 million to $25 million. On a syndicated basis, they provide mortgage banking solutions up to $300 million. In most cases, their in-house capital solutions can bridge financing gaps that traditional lenders are unable to service. They specialize in providing land acquisition loans, construction financing for large-scale developments, income-producing properties, and single-purpose facilities. With a portfolio that includes high-rise, mid-rise, and low-rise condominiums, townhouse developments, shopping centers, agricultural properties, industrial developments, and medical marijuana facilities, Abacus North is at the forefront of creative mortgage banking solutions with a focus on fostering long-term relationships. They are a multifaceted organization that services domestic and international clients with their mortgage banking needs. Complex financing solutions require analytical thinking well beyond a typical mortgage broker relationship. As a result, they focus on providing engineered solutions for their client. Their key differentiation strategy is that they assist clients in actively managing the capital stack in order to minimize borrowing costs while maximizing flexibility. Abacus North focuses on national and global opportunities. We are I. All right, everybody, we're sitting down with Todd Howard today for president of uh, Pacific Rim College, and he's going to kind of give us a little bit of lowdown, not only about himself and how he's got here on this journey, but um, everything acupuncture and uh, just kind of a little bit about the college itself, too. And, you know, as you guys all know that this is Eastern Medicine Month, Eastern Philosophy Month on WRI, and we've been well educated up to this point, and now we're going to start breaking it down you know, into like the subtopics and subcategories, um, you know, of Eastern philosophy, Eastern medicine. And uh, we're beginning here today with Todd. So welcome to the show, Todd. Thanks, Blake. It's great to be here. Uh, so again, you know, like we kind of talked a little bit before the podcast today about filling us in on your backstory a little bit. And, you know, I always find it's critical so we can build those connections like we were talking about. So, you know, fill us in, like, like what brought you down this path? Like, how did you get into, you know, Eastern medicine, Eastern philosophy, you know, like, like fill us in, give us the scoop. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, as long as I can remember, I've been interested in medicine, uh, at least since starting high school. I used to take part in a program in high school where I could go to the hospital and do rounds. Um, I was a, a competitive runner, and due to a slew of personal injuries, I became very interested in how to treat those injuries and how I could perform at, at an optimal level. And 
I ended up going off to university to study pre-med and and during the, I think it was my first year in university, I had a pretty nasty shoulder injury while I was wakeboarding. I dislocated my shoulder and then I didn't take time off. And I think that summer I ended up dislocating my shoulder about 10 more times while wakeboarding. And obviously I was pretty frustrated with the injury. And I'd, I'd been to see numerous medical specialists for what I could do about that orthopedic surgeons and I had had all the scans and x-rays done uh, all the tests they could do as far as the technology what it would provide but at the end of the day my orthopedist didn't really know what was going on and it was suggested that I should have an exploratory surgery and to me exploratory sounded a a bit risky when combined with the word surgery. I really didn't want to be cut open to see if they could figure out what was wrong. And, uh, but nonetheless, I didn't think I had any options. So I, I went down that road scheduling my surgery. And about a month before my surgery, I was visiting my brother in Boulder, Colorado. And Boulder is a hotbed for complementary medicine. And I remember I was just sitting around one day and I don't know where the interest came from. I think I had the interest in acupuncture before this point, but I decided to open up a phone book and find an acupuncturist and go and visit them. And so I literally chose a number at random out of the acupuncture listings, got in that day, went to see this acupuncturist. And when I walked in, he asked what he could do for me. And I said, well, really, I'm just interested in acupuncture. I'm a pre-med student and I'm curious about how acupuncture works. And so we went through a treatment and I was taking in as much as I could. And at the very end, I remember mentioning my shoulder. And he said, well, let's have a look at it. And in the first 30 seconds, he did something that none of the other doctors had done. And that is he actually looked at my shoulder, both shoulders, and touched both shoulders to compare them. And within that 30 seconds, he was able to give me an exact diagnosis of what was going on with my shoulder. And not from an Eastern medicine perspective either. It was from an allopathic perspective. He, could, he told me exactly what happened to the, the long tendon up, or the long head of my vestibular tendon. And he told me how he would treat it if I could come in and, and get treated. And so I scheduled an appointment for the next day. I came in. He did very deep tissue massage on the site of the injury. Then he did acupuncture. And I left feeling great. And about a week later, I canceled my surgery. And my shoulder has been perfect since. So it was a huge eye-opening experience for me. And at the time, I was... I was running cross country and track at my university and I went back and I told my coach about my experience and it so happened that his brother was an acupuncturist in Ontario and he had done some training in Sri Lanka and I had a travel bug already and so as soon as I heard Sri Lanka I was I was hooked and so I decided at that point when I finished my my undergrad studies I would go on and study acupuncture and to Sri Lanka it's, it's where I ended up going for to begin that journey. You know, and, you know, I think like those are the things, you know, like that, you know, when you when you highlight your experience there, like that's the road that we all typically walk down, right? We're like, and that's pretty much the main reason why that I wanted to highlight, you know, you know, all these different 
avenues that we can explore, like, you know, on the podcast, because, you know, we do feel backed into a corner, kind of like how you did, you know, and, you know, whether we're like 18, 40 or 80, like, you know, we always were coached to think there's only this singular avenue. Um, like, why do you think that is like in Canada? Like, what's your perspective on that? Like, why, why have we devalued like all these other systems that are offered around the world where, you know, people have been having amazing results for like thousands of years? Mm-hmm. Well, we're conditioned culturally that way and the pharmaceutical industry has such a strong influence on the way our society works and we have adopted the philosophy of symptoms are bad and we need to do whatever we can to get rid of the symptoms in holistic forms of medicine which many of the eastern forms of medicine are the body is not looked at as a bunch of individual parts and systems and symptoms are not looked at as the enemy. It's all looked at holistically. The body is all one. Everything works synergistically within the body. And the symptoms are merely messengers that tell us how the body is doing, how our health is. And so if we deny the expression of those symptoms, we're basically telling our body to shut up. And we're going on naively completely unaware of what's happening in our body because we just keep taking one pill after another to suppress those symptoms, those messages. And eventually it takes us to a point of chronic disease and breakdown. So it's, it's the system itself that is it's in, in great need of repair. And when you, when I have spent time in Eastern cultures, I spent time doing acupuncture rotations in the hospitals in China, just that statement itself, acupuncture in the hospitals in China, acupuncture is in every hospital in China. There is a ward for acupuncture. There is a ward for herbal medicine. There is a ward for Chinese massage known as Twina. And so when patients check into hospitals there, they get whatever treatment is appropriate based on the experts who are, who are deciding on a treatment, but it's not based on a singular system of, well, we either have to treat this with drugs or surgery. And that unfortunately is the way the allopathic system is primarily set up here. It's very heavily monetized. In China, a patient will typically come and get acupuncture every single day until a condition is resolved. Wow. Here, if people are going to see, see an acupuncturist, They're normally going at best once a week because that's financially what they can afford. So what I used to always tell my students is our journey to health uh, when we are in a state of dis-ease is similar to climbing a descending escalator. So the escalator is working against us. We know we can get to the top if we're determined to do it. And so in our culture, typically what we do is we take one or two steps up and then we stop. And that escalator is going to bring us right back down to the bottom. And then the symptoms flare up again and we take one or two steps up and then we stop because the symptoms have gone away because we've taken the drug to silence them and eventually we're back to the bottom. With the more holistic forms of medicine, it's one step after another after another until you get to the top. And when you get to the top, to that plateau or that new level of health, then you can stop because you're off that escalator. And you're going to you're going to be able to maintain an equilibrium there until whatever it is that perhaps caused your disease in the first place comes back. If you haven't actually treated that root cause, but it's a very different approach than what we see in allopathic medicine, 
when I was doing my uh, acupuncture studies and some clinical rotations in Sri Lanka, we would literally see the same patients every single day. In some cases, for months at a time. It depended on how severe their condition was. But it wasn't even a thought of, well, should I come back in a week or come back in two weeks? No, it's you come back tomorrow. Because what we're doing is helping to balance the system, helping to balance the body. And because we're not using drugs or any other invasive procedures, there are no side effects to it. And so the body takes takes that energetic information and it is able to use it to help bring about a better state of health. But it might take longer to have that happen than taking a drug, which immediately will silence the symptoms. But again, silencing the symptoms is not bringing about a state of health. If anything, it's it's doing the opposite. Well, on that end, it seems like, you know, even like with like the drugs, like a lot of the drugs that we take here in like Western culture, the the side effects of them are almost like the symptoms that we're trying to suppress as well. So it's like the body's continually trying to say like, you know, I have these symptoms, like, you know, please just recognize that I'm trying to tell you and like trigger this response, like take them responsibly, take this information responsibly. And, you know, it's like what you highlighted too, where it's the, you know, you go down to Boulder, Colorado, you know, you walk in and this person touched you. They felt your body. They looked at your body and they understood your body wanted to be a part of like your experience. And, you know, like those are things that were just void of here, you know, and like, that's the part that I, I value and I respect the most, you know, about, you know, Eastern style practices is that it's, it actually does represent patient care. You know, like there's somebody who's taken interest in you. Um, Absolutely. That all being said, I want to hear a little bit more right from the beginning of when you went boots on the ground in Sri Lanka, because I have a, a quite a few Sri Lankan friends um, and saying these friends and um, I know they're going to be listening to this and I just want to kind of get like your perspective on it because they talk so highly about the country. But um, this is a, a part that I've never heard them talk about because they're not expressed in this uh, in this field and stuff. So uh, kind of fill us in on what it was like when you landed in Sri Lanka in this new experience, and this new life you're about to embark on. Yeah, absolutely. I think I was probably around 20 years old. I had just finished my undergrad and I was really excited to be heading off and exploring the world. And I was planning on spending about a month in Sri Lanka. I think that's what my ticket was for. I ended up staying for a year. And the reason I went there is because there was an amazing doctor. He was the chief rheumatologist in Sri Lanka, who also happened to be a very well-known acupuncturist. And he, he was famous. He was famous throughout the country. And in some cases, infamous because he he did a lot of things that were kind of questionable. But all of all of the work that he did had the single intention of bringing acupuncture and health to people of Sri Lanka. It was a beautiful thing. He had free clinics set up, and as a as a foreigner, I foreigner, I was able to come in with my medical training and very early on, let's call it day two, be in the clinic. Uh, hands-on with patients. Uh, my first treatment, or my first patient, I should say, I believe was a papaya. So I remember sticking needles in a papaya. Yeah. And then uh, the next day, I think that papaya turned into actual people. Uh, that's a type of aggressive training that would never be done in the West. In Sri Lanka, however, at the time, it was a situation where there were thousands of, of patients who were in need. And literally, we had thousands of patients. We would see about 300 patients a day 
in our clinic. And my mentor, Dr. Anton Jayasuriya, would bring healthcare specialists, foreigners from who had trained around the world. Some of us were uh, physiotherapists or doctors or whatever it might be, people who had an extensive background in medicine. And he would bring them in typically for a month-long crash course in acupuncture. Uh, crash course doesn't sound great, but literally it was an intensive because he knew they had the healthcare knowledge. They had the, the background in anatomy and physiology. And so all of that could be kind of put aside and we could just focus on helping people using acupuncture. And acupuncture in itself is extremely safe if you know the risks. And so he very early on taught us the physical risks and then he taught us the energetic risks. And so we were able to help patients um, immediately. So I was literally treating patients in my first probably three or four days. And um, by the end of, it, I would, end of it, I was probably treating 40 or 50 patients a day. What I found in Sri Lanka was a culture that was experiencing such severe hardship. Civil war was happening at the time I was there. Uh, there was even an attack on the airport the day before or the day after um, the day after my mom left. She had come for a visit and she literally had just flown through the airport. And then the next day, um, insurgents took over the airport and blew up three or four of the planes in the Sri Lankan Airlines fleet. So it was very real. It was very palpable. You couldn't travel very far in the country without going through security checkpoints. But despite that, and despite the extensive poverty, the people are so happy and they are so generous. I, I cannot tell you how many dinners I was invited to in people's homes. And these weren't just dinners, these were feasts. And, and sometimes the, their homes were very, very uh, basic. And yet they would bring you in and they would treat you uh, like one of one of them, like one of the family. And it was a beautiful experience, and I had this time and time again. And not only were the people amazing, but the, the landscape is absolutely stunning. It's, it is, hands down, one of the most beautiful places I have ever been and, and one of my favorite places to visit. I've been back a, a couple of times since and hope to go back some more. Uh, but really just amazing landscape, amazing, amazing water, <clears throat> the wildlife, it's, it really has it all. It's, um, having traveled in both India and Sri Lanka, I find that there's a lot of similarities. It's just that Sri Lanka is bite-sized. You're able to take it in and, and absorb a good chunk of it uh, in a relatively short period of time. As opposed to India, I found that you kind of need about a decade to be able to really take that in. So, yeah, absolutely. So I had no, nothing but incredible experiences, both in the clinic, in my training there, and also traveling around the country. I'm going to reel it back real quick, just because I want to know what you know now. How valuable was it to the experience to you, like where you got in, you know, and you could immediately start seeing patients and you're like developing that connection, you know, like with them, like, how does that transfer on like to you today? Like as, as a healthcare professional and, you know, like your, your confidence, your knowledge, you know, like the extents of your expertise, like I imagine something like that would just be absolutely invaluable because at a time when you're so hungry to be able to like treat patients and be a part of their, their, you know, healthcare protocol that, you know, 
that must have just been overwhelmingly abundant of building your confidence in this field. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I had just spent four years studying medicine in university. I was so uninspired by that experience. It was all textbook studies. I would I would take in the information, I would purge it out onto a, an exam, and then that would be that. And when I finished that, had I not had this near dream of studying acupuncture, I'm not sure what I would have done. I probably would have gone on to do my postgrad in medicine and then gone on and probably have not been very happy. When I got to Sri Lanka and started to treat patients within the first few days, I was overwhelmed by the practical uh, potential of all the information I had learned in the previous four years because it had never turned practical. It was always just textbook information. And so when I got there and I got to start treating patients, I got to actually start using the anatomy and the physiology and, and understanding it and, and, and reading into the pathology and understanding it. And so it was an amazing experience. And I went with no books. And I recall very early on, I was traveling around looking for bookstores that sold English books. And I was buying up medical textbooks in English because I wanted to read them now, as opposed to my my university studies where I felt I had to read them, but I really wasn't inspired to. So being able to be there on the ground with patients and getting results from the very beginning, it was hugely transformative in my life. And fast forward several years when I ended up starting Pacific Rim College, it very much influenced the curriculum of the college. And to this day, our students will start their clinical training in their first week of, of their programs. And that, that is typically unheard of in schools who are offering programs in the education that we do. Normally, students will wait until their first year is complete, in some cases, until their second year is complete. And so we're putting them in a very safe clinical training environment, so there's no, there's no risk. And at the same time, they're getting that practical, hands-on, person-to-person experience that really is probably the reason why we all started studying natural medicine anyway, is because we want to help people. So, yeah, life, life from that experience absolutely changed very quickly. I also really took to the type of acupuncture that we were doing there, which is known, fairly widely known now in the West as community acupuncture. And the basic premise of it is, is that you're in a, a larger room and patients are typically seated around the room. And one practitioner can actually take on five or 10 or more patients at a time, depending on the skill level of that practitioner and the safety setup of that space. And it allows for a greatly reduced rate uh, for patients who are paying for that treatment. They're not getting one-on-one intensive attention for an hour, but they are in this environment where the energy itself is incredibly healing because everyone is there with the same focus. I want to get better. I want to get healthier. And the practitioner is able to, or sometimes there's multiple practitioners, they are able to give adequate attention to each patient, but it's, again, it's not going to be an hour straight of attention. It might be 10 or 15 minutes, and then they'll, then they'll turn their attention to another patient while the first patient has the needles in them, and while those needles are actually doing work. And 
And so it's a really interesting style, and that was also something that I introduced into the college right from the beginning as a community acupuncture. Well, and you even seen that with like things like like personal training and like you know like these group classes and all that kind of stuff for like where people could get guidance, you know. But like it wouldn't be like one on one attention, but it it would be the perfect way to be able to make structured programming affordable to everybody. And because like that's always like our biggest concern out here is that like we would all love to go regularly, but be able to have the finances to be able to do it. Like that's tough, you know, but obviously like you're incorporating a style that, you know, it can bring it to the masses. And I think those are the things that we need and we need more of, because, you know, if we're going to make this cultural shift and like in the responsibility of our own personal healthcare, like we need affordable options too, because we know there's not a lot of places we can go to be able to express, you know, having affordable options. Absolutely. Accessibility is key and and community acupuncture really helps in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. So then um, my next question about like the Sri Lankan experience was the, tell me what you feel is like the, the reason why, or like the, the value behind the reason why everybody was so happy. Cause this is a big thing, obviously, you know, that like the research that's around the world now that, you know, people in third world countries or third world like countries typically um, from a mental health perspective, are substantially further off than what we are in the West, even though that we want to think that we're further ahead. Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind is personal possessions. They don't have many. And the mindset is not how to get more. It is how to live in, in a state of peace and happiness with what you have. And it might be very, very, very basic. I remember traveling through some other countries, um, in particular, I think I was in Mongolia. And going into these villages, I was with a few friends and actually a few acupuncture colleagues. And we were were staying in the yurts, in the homes of Mongolians. And our trash was very quickly taken by the youngsters and turned into something, anything, but it was a form of these were resources that we would just throw out that they looked at as, no, that's, that's a treasure. And so I think that has a lot to do with it. There's it's these, the mindset is not so much greed based and the happiness is not derived from the actual possessions it comes internally and so when when youngsters in our cultures are playing their video games or watching netflix or on their personal computers for four six eight hours a day in other parts of the world where they don't have access to these things they're outside exploring they're playing together. They're doing imaginative play. They're they're out in nature learning about things. And there's a community of them. There's always a group of them. And it's such a different way of life than what people here have gotten used to. And I think that ultimately imprints them for the rest of, of their time on, on this earth. And it's it helps them to derive bliss from even the smallest things. And I'll say some of the patients who came into our clinic, they were suffering from 
And I've seen this in other other places where I work too, including in in Tanzania and Uganda. They're suffering from such incredible illnesses, gruesome illnesses in some cases, debilitating illnesses, and yet they'll typically come in and they they won't talk about all of those things. They'll talk about something that's relatively simple, such as their knee hurts. And so as a practitioner, I can treat their knee and I can help them with their knee, but I can see there's a whole lot of other things going on, but it's almost as if they're, they don't want to be selfish about that. They don't want to be greedy. They're appreciative for any help they can get. And at that current moment, their knee is the thing that's bothering them most, but there's so much more depth to it. And juxtaposed to what we have in our culture as practitioners uh, we often find that when people come to us we get the whole thing everything comes out and and it's there's nothing wrong with that but i think it's it kind of again speaks to the mindset in in a lot of these countries that are impoverished we'll call them there's just a different price tag or value put on life and they're able to get by with so much less and not just get by but actually in in a sense thrive so it's i'm sure there's a a lot more to it than that those are just some of my my superficial observations but and um, we go to the doctor here in western culture typically most of the time just to be able to be told that we're okay you know, oh, yeah. so like when you said yeah. like the juxtaposition of it, it's just like, well, these people, they might have this knee thing and it's, and you could imagine the amount of pain and discomfort that somebody would be in to say like, Hey, I have this knee pain when they have other substantial like injuries or disease that you can see and you can, this representation. And then like, we're just like, well, I'm going to go to the doctor because this is my six months checkup and I'm just going to make sure that I'm okay. You know, but like you said, like the, like the contrast of these environments are just intense. Yeah, and, and I'm going to go to the doctor to get a few more pills so that I don't have to listen to what's actually happening. Yeah, absolutely. But it sounds like there's there's quite a story. Like, if, if you wouldn't mind, like, like Sri Lanka sounds like just the very beginning. Like, you've talked about Tanzania, Uganda, you know, you've, you just, like, you've listed off, like, several other places. Like, it kind of fills it in a little bit. It was a platform for me where not only did I learn so much about medicine, I also learned a lot about myself. And it was there that I I was put in a position to teach. And I realized I actually am pretty good at it. And I loved it. And it was there that I really changed in my approach to what I thought I might be as a practitioner. And it was in this community style of acupuncture where all of our treatments were free in Sri Lanka. We didn't charge Dr. Jayasree, didn't charge anyone. He had treated millions of patients. And so that was something that really struck me as, as very honorable and noble and something that I wanted to be able to do. And so we, through Pacific Rim College, which I started in 2006, uh, I, I also started what we call our global outreach program. And so we have clinical partners around the world, typically in impoverished countries. And our students uh, voluntarily or by choice will will go there to do some of their clinical training. And so I've been to a number of those locations and had that experience of 
of being able to help people in, in various cultures and seeing how transformative it is to them and how grateful uh, and great that doesn't even begin to describe it how they are just overwhelmed with with gratitude and joy that we would be taking the time to help them and it's such a beautiful experience to to be able to help people in that type of environment there's no expectations from them they're coming to you just with the hope of of any sort of attention that you can give them uh, and and whatever it might be they typically take that and they're so grateful for for that experience or that service well and, and even so like as really like a healthcare is. provider like i could imagine that with you having an experience like that to be able to contrast it with the people typically that we would find in like western culture where there's like the expectation is that you either fix me or you failed typically you know here versus you know like these people that you're explaining where it's just like just to be able to have the graciousness of your time that you're willing to be able to sit down and see them like like that that alone that building the connection between like you two on on a more like level of humanity saying like you know like we're two people that can come together like this and i would imagine that would allow you to fundamentally understand that person's like issues and offer them a lot better style of healthcare. Absolutely. And even in many of those cases, we didn't speak the same language, but just being fully present with, with someone who, who, who's not expecting anything from you. They are just, they're just there. And, and if there's any help that can be given to them, they're going to be grateful for that help. And just being present with those people and, and again, not even speaking their same language, some of the results were absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, I actually, I'll share a little story. When I was, I was either in my second or third month in Sri Lanka, and I was taking a weekend off with one of my acupuncture colleagues, and he was a physician in Germany. And we were at a hotel that was owned by the family of, of my mentor, Dr. Jai Saria. And it was far out into the, the country. And we were having breakfast one morning, and a guest of the hotel came running down the hill to us. We were on a, an outdoor seating pavilion overlooking a river. And he came down and he said, doctors, please help me. My niece is having a severe asthma attack. And... Of course, we, we wanted to help, so we, we, we followed him up the hill to the hotel room, and as we were walking there, I remember my, my friend, who was a physician, a practicing physician, a very good one, he turned to me and he said, uh, I don't have any tools, I don't have any of my equipment, so this one's on you. I had been in Sri Lanka probably a month longer than he had. He was, I think he was still in his, I think he was only there for a month. So he was in his, his first month crash course and I had maybe been there for two or three months. And so I got a little bit nervous, also a little bit excited. And we walked into the hotel room and to me, I always remember it as a scene from the English patient. And it was this large hotel room, uh, but very basic. And there was this four poster bed and, and one part of it with a mosquito net draped all around the bed. And the way the morning light was coming in, it was just kind of this angelic type of atmosphere. 
And there was an extended family all gathered around. This was a family reunion, probably 10 or more people. And I looked on the bed and there was a young teenage girl doubled over gasping for air. <laughs> and her uncle told us she had been that way since the night before. Uh, but we were far too, uh, we were much too far removed from any hospital for her to safely be transported. And the roads were uh, not good by any stretch. And so here she was literally struggling to hang on to each breath. And I went over and I recall moving the mosquito net aside so I could sit down on the bed beside her. And I introduced myself and I asked to see her right arm or to hold her right arm. As we were walking to the room, I'm going through my data bank of, of acupuncture knowledge, which being two months in was pretty limited at that point. But I knew there was a point on an, a point on the arm that affects the lung and the energetic system of the lung very greatly. And it's called Kongsway, which means maximum opening. So basically it's a point that opens, maximally opens the lungs and the capacity of the lungs. And we're taught that in a case of acute respiratory distress, that point is sometimes where the energy blockage is. And uh, we'll probably get into the, the workings of acupuncture in a little bit. But there's a specific point on her forearm that I knew there was a good chance it might be sore. It might have an energetic blockage. And so I had her right arm and I, I recall taking a, a finger and tracing up her forearm to the point and I started to press on it. And the pressure I was putting was so light, but in that first moment of applying pressure, she screamed and she jerked her arm away from me. And I'll never forget the moment because everyone in the room, all of her family, I, I thought they were going to kill me because I, it didn't look like I was actually helping. It looked like I was making matters worse. But I knew in that moment that I had hit the spot. I knew that if touching that spot, it had caused that reaction, that there, there must have been a huge energetic blockage there. And so after a short period of time passed, I asked if I could see her arm again. And this time I laid my finger on that point. And over probably the course of 60 seconds, I increased the pressure as gently as I could. And after about 30 seconds, her breathing started to change. It went from that extreme labored breathing and she was pale. She was sweating. She was, she was in a really rough state and her breathing started to slow down and it started to deepen. And this went on for 20 or 30 seconds until she took her final deep breath of clear oxygen and she sat up and she looked at me and she smiled. A huge smile came across her face and that was it. The asthma attack was done. And I was, I still get tingles from telling the story because I, it was my first experience probably ever actually being able to help someone in that way. And I had such little training in acupuncture and to be able to use a finger to help this girl who was in a severe state of distress, it was, it was life changing for me. And it was, it certainly crystallized for me my my desire to pursue acupuncture and 
energetic medicines in general more because I wanted to know more. I wanted to know how I could help people in the way that I had been able to help her. And uh, I, I stayed with the family for the rest of that day. They, they treated me and my colleague uh, to a, a day with them, and it was an amazing experience. And she was completely healthy the entire day. Sadly, I did not stay in touch with the family, so I don't know what the, the um, more permanent outcomes may have been from that treatment. But I did teach them where that point was in case they needed to use it again. But there is a chance, and, and I can only speculate, but there's a chance that she maybe wouldn't need that again. Because just by doing what I did, I may have been able to shift the energy enough, shift that blockage that was probably a chronic blockage, that it might have been a situation where her asthma attacks never came back. Mm-hmm. I, I won't know that. Uh, unlike what we would do in Western medicine, though, where we would pump the body full of steroids and we would just drive that condition deeper into the body, And it's going to manifest again. And in some cases, it's going to manifest as more severe respiratory attacks. And in other cases, it's going to manifest as more severe chronic conditions, such as eczema. And eczema and asthma typically go hand in hand because we're doing this dance of using steroids to treat both of them. And in both cases, you're just driving this toxin, whatever it may be, or this toxic energy deeper into the body. And it it is going to make it to the surface somehow, eventually. And when it does that, it might be, it might be a skin condition, it might be an asthmatic condition, or it might be something more severe. See, and, you know, and it's an experience like that, you know, like where you say, like, you know, like clearly, you'll never forget that. And, you know, like, just like the goosebumps that I feel, you know, like you telling a story, and it's like, you know, when you're connected with that like it almost you know brought like you know tears my eyes when you're telling me because um again like like this highlights to me like how many doctors in in western medicine like when you would come out where they would just be a quick prescription or you know like telling a nurse what to do but again like you built that physical contact with that human being that to this day still can connect you with it personally that it gives you goosebumps and like things like that i think are absolutely profound and should be a part of our healthcare where like you remember those kind of things and like you have that kind of impact and then you give them the tools to be able to, you know, go express that where they might not need somebody's help or the help to the degree of what they did where somebody's running down a hill to be able to find anybody to be able to help. Yeah. And could you imagine a healthcare system here where when you did go to the doctor for an acute condition like that, they tried something natural and safe first. It only took me 60 seconds to do that and it really only took me two seconds to figure out that was going to be effective and i i I just think about the 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 injustice that we're doing through our medical system that when someone goes to a, a specialist to get treatment again it's just about giving pills that's what here you take this and basically shut up Whereas if we adopted this more complementary, integrative approach, then there wouldn't be restrictions. There wouldn't be, well, you've got to do this form of medicine and not that form of medicine. They can all work together synergistically. And there is always going to be a time for Western medicine. Absolutely. And it's what it can do for people is incredible. But it is not always the time for Western medicine. There are many other forms of therapy that can be tried first and safely 
And if they do or don't work, they're then not going to affect negatively the outcome of Western medicine when we do need it. Well, yeah, and it always comes back to like that, like our body has the resources and like the tools to be able to, you know, help conquer what's going on in our body. You know, like we just might need to poke and prod those synths or those systems, you know, to be able to shift lanes or, you know, like change gears, you know, go off on a little bit different of a path. You know, it, it doesn't always need immediate intervention. You know, it does that process doesn't need to stop. Like, you know, like we can say, okay, like you can work with it. Like you worked with her symptoms to be able to have a positive conclusion. It's just like, you know, most people wouldn't have the patience, you know, because when you're telling me that story, like, like I see the professionalism in you and like who you are as a person when, when you had the patience to say, okay, I'm going to go back to this therapy. I'm not going to second guess myself. I'm going to go back to this therapy. I'm going to take the time. I'm going to slowly apply that pressure and, you know, like develop that, that technique over time where it doesn't have to be immediate. Cause you know, people, again, like we want like an immediate solution. If she's having an, you know, an asthma attack, it needs to be immediate right now. People might not even take this 60 seconds, but think of like what you afforded her in knowing that like she herself has the tools in that moment. If nobody else is around, she could help potentially change her own course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe this is a good segue to get into like to acupuncture. Like I just I'm dying to know what's going on inside of that that brain yours now that you just told that story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll I'll try to take it back to kind of the basic building blocks of it. And the well, acupuncture itself is a an ancient system of medicine. It's based in uh, potentially many different cultures typically or i think all of them eastern cultures and today we formally know it as part of traditional chinese medicine and traditional chinese medicine is acupuncture herbal medicine chinese massage chinese uh, exercise or movement such as some chinese martial arts qigong and tai chi chinese diet therapy uh, it's an entire and complete system of medicine and it is based on as you said earlier thousands of years of, of practice and evidence and textbooks and we still to this day will use we teach those ancient texts yes there may be some slight modifications to how we apply them but by and large they're very slight and what what these amazing uh, medical sages were figuring out thousands of years ago is still very much applicable today the language is often quite different than what we're used to, uh, but even that, in some cases, I'm always always fascinated when I find a terminology parallel between this ancient language of Chinese medicine and our modern-day language, and maybe I'll get some examples later of that. Uh, but acupuncture did not only come out of China, at least that's what the evidence shows. And in Sri Lanka and India, there's very old evidence of acupuncture. Arguably, actually, the oldest evidence of acupuncture comes from Sri Lanka, and it was used with elephants. And the elephant trainers would actually, and not just the trainers, but anyone who was looking after the elephants, they would use the acupuncture, typically with some form of sharpened instrument, such as a stone, to help treat their conditions, to help treat their illnesses. And there are these ancient manuscripts written on a type of leaf called an ola leaf, and they have the anatomical map of an element 
elephant and acupuncture points on that elephant and each of those acupuncture points has a different function and it's very similar to when we find the ancient ancient maps of the human body with acupuncture points and so there's a a belief that potentially acupuncture spread uh, or it it began in the treatment of elephants and potentially other animals and then it spread along the various trade routes in in asia so the spice route and the silk route and when it got to china or perhaps the chinese developed their own version of it on uh independently either way they're really the ones who we can give a lot of credit to and most of the credit to for turning it into the system that we know of today um but acupuncture is also performed as a regularly in japan there's a, an entire system of acupuncture based on japanese style of acupuncture and then there's many styles of of pressure based medicine or therapies that don't use needles but still work on a similar premise uh, most listeners are probably familiar with foot reflexology and by getting your foot your feet massage the reflexologist can actually alter the energy in different parts of your body because the entire energetic system of the body runs through those feet and so the the concept of sticking needles into the body is is uh it's a little bit more modern i've i've heard i don't have proof of it but i've heard that prior to needles there were other instruments used even uh, pine needles uh were potentially used to try to puncture the body to influence the acupuncture points now the reason that we use today sterile uh single use needles the reason we use needles is because the needles are basically i always liken them to keys they they are keys and on our body we have according to the the premise of acupuncture we have energetic corridors running throughout our body so there's no cell in our body that is not fed by these energetic corridors now of course and in our culture we hear energy and a lot of people think it's some sort of woo woo stuff um but we just call it by a different name so in china the energy is known as chi uh japan it's called ki and india and sri lanka it's often referred to in the ayurvedic system as prana it's energy and we do have an equivalent for it in western medicine but we typically don't don't speak of it in the same way but our energetic currency is atp adenosine triphosphate and when you speak in terms of it that way doctors can understand it yes there's atp we need the mitochondria of the cells there's so much research right now about the mitochondria and how we can help our mitochondria create more energy well this is the same energy that's been talked about in in uh eastern medicines for thousands of years it just has a different name so these corridors of energy run throughout the entire body and again there's no cell that's not touched by the energy because the cell can't live without the energy and in acupuncture we have mapped them into finite lines that run superficially across the body and there's 12 main lines um sorry there's 14 main lines that run superficially on the body and then there's eight other uh slightly deeper ones that connect those and we have used the terminology which is roughly translated from chinese 
to name these different energetic lines after organs in our body. So there's a liver meridian, there's the lung meridian, there's the stomach meridian. But I don't want listeners to think about those necessarily in the sense of they only affect the the stomach as we know it, or the lung as we know it, or the liver as we know it. They They affect the entire energetic system that is associated with that. So we know the liver is responsible for detoxification in the body. Uh, The liver is also responsible in a way for how we handle stress because stress is an emotional reaction and no emotional reaction occurs without a chemical reaction in our body. And it's primarily the responsibility of our liver to deal with all those chemicals. And if someone is constantly under a state of stress, cortisol is constantly being produced and released into their body. The liver has to deal with that. And so in Chinese medicine, we would potentially in that case turn to the liver system to look for blockages because this person is having a difficult time dealing with their stress. Well, let's check the liver meridian or pathway and see if there's any sort of physical or energetic blockages. So we have these corridors or meridians of energy throughout the body. And then along these superficial pathways of acupuncture, we have points. Now the points have been discovered over thousands of years of more than likely palpation, but also medical intuition. There are some healers who just have the gift of being able to not only feel the energetic vortexes on the body, but also in some cases to see them. Uh, They may see auras around them or some other sort of energetic imprint. And roughly speaking, there's between three and 400 of these points along the meridians. And I call them doorways. So there are doorways along these hallways or corridors of energy. In a state of ideal health, optimal health, the energy flows freely throughout the system. And that's even roughly translated in Chinese is that when the energy is flowing freely, there is a state of health. It is when the energy doesn't flow freely that we have dis-ease. And so... As an acupuncturist or another therapist who works with these with these meridians of energy, basically what we're using is our training and our intuition to ascertain where certain doors might be locked. And if you think of it in a in a school, and I don't know if there's still bells for lunch in, in our public school systems, but the bell goes off and everyone tries to get to the cafeteria. And as they leave the classrooms, the doors are unlocked so students can rush out into the hallway. And as they go, they're all focused on getting to the cafeteria. And when they get there, it's expected that the door is going to be unlocked. And if it is, the energy continues to flow and everything's in a state of homeostasis. If it isn't unlocked, if that door is locked, then you're going to get an energetic blockage at that door. And the longer the door is blocked, the more people are going to pile in behind and push And the energetic blockage is going to get stronger and stronger. And ultimately, it is going to result in some sort of health condition. And it may be that people on the front start to get really uncomfortable. They start to get squished by the pressure. And the energy in the body is very similar. When there's a blockage, it could be physically due to a bruise. It could be an injury in a muscle or a tendon. Or, as we know, we all carry stress in different ways. It could very much be an energetic blockage. Maybe someone's carrying tension from stress in their neck or in their shoulders. It might not be a physical blockage, but there is some sort of energetic blockage. 
And the acupuncturist's job is to try to figure out which doors are locked. There's always doors that are locked. And once we do that... I'm actually really happy that you just said that. Because that's always, that's one thing that I say to people all the time is, I think in today's world, we try to chase perfection because we have a general concept of what that perfect place may be and thinking that it's attainable. But I try to say to people, like, there's always going to be something. We just have to try to stay ahead of the curve that we don't get too many things. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be something. And those some things do not necessarily have to be bad things. They are symptoms. And if we think symptoms are bad, then okay, it's a negative, a negative discovery. But if we look at symptoms, symptoms as just being the way our body speaks to us, then they're not bad. And so using pressure, or in this case, the key, the acupuncture needle, the acupuncturist can actually insert the needle into that locked door. And anyone who has had acupuncture is probably aware of the feeling that often happens when there's this crazy twitch or or radiation or just a just like a burst open of a blockage right where the acupuncture needle goes in it's not the feeling of a sharp needle penetrating the skin it typically the needle will be far past the surface of the skin when someone feels this sensation and in some cases the needles can go half an inch an inch two three inches into the body it depends on the point uh, the, the point of the body or the area of the body, the tissue that is there. And when they feel that sensation, that's a very strong indication that there was a blockage and that blockage is now being released. Now, does that mean that the health is going to immediately improve to the point where the, all the symptoms disappear? No. But it means that practitioner has released one of the root causes of whatever the condition is that someone might be experiencing. There could be 20 or 30 or 50 different doors that are locked throughout the body. And in some cases, unlocking one might actually negatively impact another. So we have to look at the body holistically. We can't look at it and go, oh, this person has arm pain. Give me that arm. I'm going to treat that arm. And it kind of goes back to the story I told about the girl with the asthma attack. I didn't treat her lungs. I didn't treat her airway. I didn't treat any part of her body that in our culture we would think has anything to do with the lungs. I I found the doorway that is on that lung meridian that I expected would be blocked, but it was very far removed from the lungs. You know, and like that's like like the exploratory nature of it, right? You know, like willing to, you know, proverbially, you know, look outside the box, you know, and, and like just opening our way of thinking because you know, we're conditioned to be on this very narrow pathway, you know, and like, because that you've traveled the world, and you've had all these experiences, like, I feel like it just as like, as you speak, I can see how open your mind is, like the possibilities. And that's one of the biggest injustices that I think have happened in my life. But then I see it in everybody around me that like, we're, we're, because we're not well traveled, and that we're coached down a very narrow pathway, anything outside of that box seems we shouldn't believe it. Like you said, you know, like, where are you talking about? Like, you know, people's like chi or, you know, like, like, Rana, like, like when we hear these terms, we want to discredit them unless if we want to believe in them, you know, but like you think of like the amount of resistance cognitively that we have to go through to be able to get to a point where, where we bring validation to these terms, you know, but like, where are you talking about? Like these symptoms are 
or like these systems are very similar, like where you're talking about like like ATP, you know, like mitochondria, you know, like Krebs cycle, mitochondrial biogenesis, you know, like you start talking like this, then people over here, they're just like, okay, yeah, 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 I'm on page, you know, like, let's start talking about this. But this, as soon as you start entering other terminology into that, it's just like a rabbit hole of like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, you're one of those guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It very quickly can be dismissed and fully dismissed to the detriment of the patient. Yeah. So then, like, walk us through, like, a, a few of, like, your experiences, like, with your with your patients. Like, you had, like, this this acupressure story, you know, with this girl in, like, Sulanka. But, you know, like, traveling the world and being in all these different places. And then now, you know, um, you know, being the founder of Pacific Rim College, like, I'm sure that you've just, you've had some of the most incredible experiences with your with your patients. Could you walk us through a few? Yeah, absolutely. I'll share, actually, another one with you in Sri Lanka. And this was a couple years later when I was back visiting. I was in a little beach community and a beautiful little little spot on the south coast. And each little um, establishment along the beach, be it a restaurant or a, a small little hotel, they had their own pack of dogs. And they were very territorial dogs. They were really typically very friendly to people, but they were vicious to one another. They each had their own territory, two or three of them typically, uh, and along this whole beach. And one day I was out walking, and there was this little black dog who was completely immobilized, lying on the beach, bleeding. I believe it was its one of its front knees. And it looked like it had either slipped in between some beach rocks, maybe when a wave came in, or maybe it got attacked by another dog. Uh, but it was not in its territory. So it was really being bullied and couldn't move. It was literally lying down, basically whimpering for help. And um, I I was not far from my my little guest house. And so I think my friend went back to get my acupuncture needles. I didn't know what I was going to do. I don't think I'd ever stuck a needle in a dog. Um, but I wanted to help. I felt like I can't just not do anything. And so I had my acupuncture needles. I went over to this dog and tried to assess the injury as best as I could. And it did look like it was a just a, a physical wound, but it was obviously pretty debilitating for the dog. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I'll I'll just say that with the acupuncture needles. I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew 100% what my intention was. And my intention was to help this dog with my entire presence and whatever training I had. And I was going to be giving some, I was going to be having some sort of energetic exchange with this dog. And just by being there, I was having an energetic exchange. And I recall I put a few needles in the dog. I don't even remember where they were they were probably above and below the wound and i sat there and the dog was extremely receptive it didn't didn't yelp or flinch or try to bite me or anything and i stayed there and i petted the dog and i remember i was so wrapped up in helping this dog that at one point i looked up and there was a crowd of people standing around me and i was just kind of amazed because i had no idea that anyone was there and I eventually took the needles out of the dog and and said goodbye. And I think the dog was still there lying on the beach. I'd kind of done what I felt I could do. I didn't know what else to do. And a little bit later that day, I walked out of a little, uh, I think a little grocery establishment. 
and I was on a porch that was probably three steps up from San, Sandy Road. And this little black dog comes running along the road, up the steps, and leaps with his front paws up onto me. And I look at it, and it's the same dog. And this dog was so happy to see me. And it followed me. I don't remember how many more days I was there, several days. It literally lived on my front porch. It followed me everywhere. It became my best friend, and it was so hard to leave that dog uh, when I did have to leave. But obviously, I've never lost fascination in that experience because I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew I really wanted to help. And I knew that I had the energy and the love to give to this dog. And whether it was that or the needles or a combination of them, I'll, I'll never know. But it was certainly an incredible experience for both of us. You know, but I think like, you know, in an experience like that, like where you say that like you don't know, like you can't identify, but you do know what your intent was, you know? And like, I feel like, like that is a huge part of like the human experience or like, you know, like even when we're like interspecies where it's like, you know, you and this dog, where it's like the healing energy and the healing properties of just having a pure heart and pure intent, knowing that I want and passing that energy off to that dog through that touch. And it just, knowing that like like those are things that like I have a hard time overlooking now like the older that I get because like I transfer that even to like sometimes what feels the best when you're in your most pain is when somebody is just willing just to sit with you and like we've all heard it we've all kind of seen it or you maybe have been through and whether it's physical duress or emotional duress where it's like if somebody is just willing to be able to sit there with you and show genuine care you feel that like that's something that Absolutely. you go through. And like, that's like this, this experience with this dog. Yeah. And we teach our students, all of our students about the power of intention. And as, as therapists, practitioners, we do what we can to the best of our ability with the right intentions. Because if we, if we do things to what we think is the best of our physical ability with the wrong intentions or with the intention of, I'm pretty sure this isn't going to work. Um, we are not taking full advantage of what we actually can tap into in helping whomever our patients might be. The intention, and I've had some teachers who have, who have literally said, forget the points, forget all your knowledge of pathways of energy, use your intuition and set the right intention in treating your patients. And the more experienced a practitioner gets, the more more a practitioner can actually rely on that. But the intention is potentially the most important thing. And it reminds me of when I was scheduled to have exploratory surgery. I'm pretty sure the intention of my surgeon when they actually walked into the room, because I doubt they would even have an intention before they walked into my room at the time of surgery, I would have just been a number to them. I would just been an appointment on their calendar. Their intention was to explore. That's what an exploratory surgery is. And that, I don't like the odds of that. And I is that intention? In a situation where, where someone's intention is, is to fully help me, uh, not just to explore. And so it, the power of intention, yeah, it, it cannot be, I think, overstated how, how profound the impact of that can be well and in that situation with your surgeon would the intention be 
to help you or would the intention be to appease them? Or yeah, exactly. Or is the intention I've I've got a an a personal appointment in thirty minutes and I need to get through this as quickly as possible, or it's Friday and I'm going on a vacation or whatever it might be. Uh, those are really risky times and there's a lot of data showing when you likely will suffer negative consequences of medical procedures based on the time of day and the time of week, because there are other influences that, that will affect uh, whoever that practitioner might be. And it's really scary to think about that when I go in for a procedure that, that I could actually leave in far worse shape or not leave at all, depending on the headspace um, or the amount of presence of, of my allopathic practitioner. Now, of course, the same thing can be said of Eastern practitioners. If their headspace isn't there or if their, their presence isn't there, you're not going to get as good of results. But more than likely, you're also not going to get negative results. Well, and then it's just, you know, when you come back from somebody who's saying more of like an Eastern approach, it's like they're going in what I would feel like with a lot more of a clear intent is saying that I need to develop this connection with this person, you know, like, you know, where like in Western, especially with like a surgeon, you just might be surgery number four, Yeah, you know, but like, there's no real deep seated like connection with you or understanding like who you are as a person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, well, it's, I have a, it's hard to maintain a practice as a, a complementary practitioner if you are not able to develop connections with your patients. They will go elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And ironically, when they go to see physicians, they typically will not go elsewhere. It yeah, is, they, you know, because the thing hard. is, you know, like like out here where it's the um, if you're lucky enough to be able to have a family doctor. You, no matter what your result is with them, like I'm just saying this is the typical narrative, that you yeah. won't go anywhere else because you're, you're just lucky enough to be able to have one, no matter what the result is with this person. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me why about starting like Pacific Rim College. Yes. I, I less Sri Lanka fully inspired and full of full of life and the desire to help others. And I shortly after immigrated to Canada and I, I moved to Victoria where I'm based now to study Chinese herbal medicine because in Sri Lanka and China, I had only studied acupuncture and I wanted to have a, a, a broader uh, or a more well-rounded background in traditional Chinese medicine. And so I, I did a program in Chinese herbal medicine in Victoria at a college. And what I came to, and I, I'm going to be a little bit careful about what I say, but what I came to find or came to learn about the educational system uh, was fairly disappointing to me when it came to at least traditional Chinese medicine. And ultimately, when I graduated, uh, very shortly after, I decided that I could do it better. And, and I'll just leave it at that. That was my motivation. I thought I can, I can offer something that's better than what is currently being offered. And at the time, I was 25 or 26. 
I was single. I was motivated. I was a bit naive. I had never run a business before in my life. Uh, and, and I think that helped me in this situation because I didn't, I don't recall ever thinking about the what ifs this doesn't work. There was never a what if uh, for the bad side. It was always, well, I can do this and, and I can make a difference. And so my vision was to start a college of integrative medicine, which was different to what was being done in Canada at the time. Because at that time, it was basically modality-specific education. So if you wanted to study traditional Chinese medicine, known as TCM, you would go to a TCM college. If you wanted to study uh, nutrition, you would go to a nutrition college. If you wanted to study massage, you would go to a massage college. And that was fine, but I looked at it and I thought, well, why? Why can't we have one institution that teaches a lot of different things? Because what I find still, what I found then and what I still find today is most people who are interested in holistic medicine aren't just interested in one part because that's kind of counterintuitive to the whole concept of holism. They're interested in all of it. How can I use natural medicines to help others and, and in some cases to help the planet? And so typically people want to learn acupuncture. They want to learn herbal medicine. They want to learn nutrition. They want to learn all these different modality modalities or therapies because there's a lot of similarity in them. There's a lot of, almost all of them are energetic based. And once you start to realize how you can influence health by influencing energy, it becomes something that I find a lot of people don't want to be limited in their toolbox. They want to be able to use whatever might be most appropriate for that particular occasion. What I was also finding in the education is that even when someone did come into a college thinking, this is definitely what I want to study, probably 20% of them would get in there and after six months or a year realize this is definitely not what I want to study. And they're all, their option at that point was to withdraw from school and or potentially transfer to another school. But because it was this education was all coming from small private colleges, there were no transfer agreements amongst any of the schools and no university would accept any of these credits. And so I saw a lot of people wasting a lot of money because they would young people would get into natural medicines and find out that they'd chosen potentially one that didn't resonate strongly with them, but they're now ten thousand dollars into it. And do they spend another ten or twenty to finish that? Or do they part ways with that and transfer to another school and start over again? And I looked at a lot of the models in the in the states that were done more on an inter integrative in an integrated platform, and I thought, well, why not do that? And so in 2006, Pacific Rim College came to life. Our first programs were in acupuncture and Chinese medicine, but that's because that was my background. But within a year or two, we had a number of other programs. Now we have 13 different programs. Um, we have three in acupuncture and Chinese medicine, uh, one of which the most comprehensive leads to a doctor in traditional Chinese medicine, and that's a five-year program. Uh, we have two programs in Western herbal medicine, Western herbs being more herbs that are used in European and North American cultures, as opposed to Eastern herbs that are typically used in Ayurvedic and Chinese 
and Japanese and, and other Asian cultures. So in some cases, the herbs are the same. In other cases, they're different. And even when they are the same, they may be used a bit differently uh, based on the energetic markers of those particular herbs. And a lot of it is based on what our bodies are accustomed to based on our genetics. Uh, we offer two programs in holistic nutrition. We offer one program in doula training. Doulas are the, the mom's assistants during birth. And then we offer a program in permaculture design, which might seem a bit outside of, of the box. But ultimately, what we found out is that with all of these systems of medicine that we're teaching, they're all connected to the land. And they're all connected in many sense to, uh, with the exception of acupuncture that doesn't use herbs or, or plant-based materials, all the others do. And so we found a strong interest in our students uh, in wanting to learn more about how to take care of the land, how to be stewards of the land, and how to grow the medicine from, from a seed into an actual medicine that they can then use to help their patients. And so it was just kind of a natural evolution into our permaculture design program. And um, we, we now find that a lot of our students are, are studying permaculture in addition to other forms of natural medicine. And, and truly, it is a type of natural medicine. It's a natural medicine for the planet. And, and what we're doing with that is we're basically listening to the planet and we're applying principles of the planet in our, in our lives instead of trying to change the planet to meet and fit our needs, we are changing our needs to be more agreeable and helpful to the planet. <laughs> um, so that's kind of the full spectrum of our programs and, and it allows students to take program, multiple programs in different areas. They're in the classroom studying together. So there'll be an acupuncture student with a nutrition student with uh, our Western herbal student. And so there's a lot of interaction, which is incredibly uh, generative for everyone who's involved. And See, and I find, um, just to inject real quick, I find that to be one of the biggest disconnects to, you know, in like, like Western thing, because like when you go to like a doctor, they don't want to talk to your physiotherapist, your physiotherapist doesn't want to talk to your RMT. Like, you know, like there's always that, that disconnect and there's not that communication loop where, you know, and, and you're stuck in the middle of that. And I've always found it astonishing that nobody wants to be able to communicate in those kind of environments to understand like what's best for this patient or patient care, you know, but as you're explaining like your guys' programs, like that's the number one thing that came to my mind is that then you send these people out into like the world to be able to practice, you know, like what they've learned, but they've built such strong like industry connections with other people and they're going to have a lot better working relationship with these people as a result. Absolutely. And I, I, we're seeing a huge rise in integrative health clinics today, as opposed to when I started uh, the college in 2006. Now there's integrated health centers all over Victoria uh, and I'm sure in other, other parts of the world too. And the synergistic ability of these healthcare providers to come together and and treat provide treatment for patients it, it's profound the the difference in results that we're getting now because as you said they are actually working together as opposed to and it still happens sadly uh, we find very frequently that we'll have patients who are undergoing 
pharmaceutical treatment for a chronic condition and the advice from their doctor is don't take any herbs don't eat a complex or a, a diet that has a variety of, of plants and other other um, wholesome foods it's stick to the white bread and the white sugar and the things that that we know how to we know how they'll affect you. Now, we, all, we also know that they're going to affect them negatively, but doctors are often worried about someone switching to an organic, wholesome diet and how that's going to negatively impact their drug therapy. I mean, that's, uh, that's just counterintuitive. It, it, and, it's, and I see it time and time again, especially with pa- patients undergoing chemotherapy. They're literally told to eat a diet that I wouldn't touch. I wouldn't even consider it um, because the doctors don't want any potential side effects of the food with the medicine. Which is ironic because, you know, like when they're going through all the test trials for these medications, based on the average, you know, like North American diet, you know, like that's how all these trials, like, you know, probably come, they weren't based on, you know, like, you know, people who might be, you know, vegan or plant-based or like people are just a lot more like mindful or conscious of, of their diet and stuff, you know, but again, it's like, think of like the host of problems that, you know, happen, you know, in people's bodies and the amount of like inflammation and like the internal distress going on in people's bodies because they're choosing to be able to eat these foods. And then you have a doctor saying, okay, well, at your worst, at your time when you need to make these fundamental changes the most, we want you to keep on doing this because it's the only way that we feel like that we can accumulate accurate data. Absolutely. Like people will come out of surgeries for amputations of limbs due to diabetes necrosis and they'll be giving jello as their first meal like you've just lost a limb to diabetes let's feed you sugar yeah that's what happens in the hospital system hey don't forget you got orange juice to wash your jello down too yeah absolutely and white bread and it's it is such a bizarre system (laughs) But I don't want to focus on that because that's a that's a rabbit hole we could go down. Yeah. Do you do I know you kind of just alluded to it, but like you see like a rapid increase in influx in the amount of like, you know, like um, natural health centers, you know, like and people obviously filtering through like your college. Um, Like, do you feel very optimistic about where we are? Um, Like, I want to be wholeheartedly optimistic about like where we as citizens are, you know, taking our own healthcare responsibility and our own needs in hand, um, but then also having these options to be able to go to that, that are valid where you don't have to feel like you're doing something wrong, you know, because you want to explore something outside of the Western system. Yeah. I think it varies geographically. I am familiar with Western Canada and, and Vancouver and Victoria. There are options on every, every block. Uh, I think it definitely becomes less available in other other parts of North America and other parts of the world. But what I'm seeing here is, a, yeah, a much wider acceptance of it. It's you're no longer a pariah because you decide actually I'm not going to undergo chemotherapy. I'm going to try some more alternative, as they're known, therapies to to help. Um, now, that's still something that in the medical system, yes, they are going to be cast out as pariahs, but there's so many other practitioners now who can help them that there's, there's enough of a safety net to carry people through these choices if, the, if they do decide that they want to take a more holistic approach to their health care. 
Well, and even like the like the label is alternative, you know, then I don't feel like it carries like the credibility or the clout and stuff. And, and that I feel like is like the, the fundamental etching of where the breakdown exists. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because at the time when we when I started the college, I had a team and we were trying to figure out what our focus was going to be just by a name. And at the time, complementary and alternative medicine is what the industry was known as. And I had and still have, uh, I had a real issue with calling it alternative. And when we started out, we, we decided we were going to be complementary and integrative medicine. And now that we have permaculture, where holistic medicine and, and sustainable living is kind of the catch-all for what we do. But alternative, as you said, is... It doesn't sit well uh, for me because these are not alternative approaches. If anything, these are the traditional approaches. These are the approaches that have been used for hundreds and thousands of years and have been time tested by cultures. Western medicine is the alternative medicine. It's what's been around for 100, 150 years. And in most cases is, is not time tested. And in many cases is doesn't seem to be tested at all until it's applied on patients. And it only so really seems to fail us when it is tested. You know, like when after like 10 or 15 years of being on market, then all of a sudden, you know, realizing that when it's actually being tested, like, could you imagine like, you know, even like taking like some of these like SRS, SSRIs and saying like in 4,000 years from now, we're going to actually really fully understand kind of like what the benefits yeah. of these things are. <laughs> It's interesting what happened with, I don't know if you remember, it's probably been a decade or more back, but pro athletes uh, infrequently, but occasionally were dying from overdoses on ephedra. Yep. Ephedra is a stimulant and it helps them in their performance. Now, ephedra has been used in Chinese medicine for thousands of years. It's a plant called mahuang. And when you use a plant such as mahuang in Chinese medicine, you're typically using the whole plant or a part of the plant that does a certain thing. And with mahuang, you can either use one part of the plant that causes sweating, or you can use another part that actually does the opposite effect. It constricts the pores and it decreases sweating. And what was happening with these athletes is they were taking the stimulant version of it, ephedrine, which is not even the original plant anymore. This is all chemically synthesized. There's nothing natural about it. And they're taking it in such high doses that their heart rate is speeding up and eventually they are, they're having cardiac arrest or having a stroke. And the irony was ephedrine was not deemed to be problematic in Western medicine, but mahuang was actually banned in North America. Practitioners couldn't use this herb that has been used for thousands of years safely because people were taking a synthetic chemical derivative of one component of this plant. Now, bear in mind, any plant that we eat or ingest or that exists will have hundreds, if not thousands, of chemical components. And in pharmaceutical medicine, we're typically taking one component. We're isolating that one thing that has the, the ability to generate the result that we're looking for, whether that's to take away pain or to cause sweating. And then 
we're doing it one more disfavor by then synthesizing it, making it fake, making something that looks like it and acts like it. And so all of these components of the original plan that work synergistically to maintain health, we've discarded and discredited all of that. And now we're focusing on this one chemical derivative of one part of this plan. And so people were dying from the ephedrine, but on the other side, mahuang, this safe plant, was banned. And it made no sense. You could still buy ephedrine, but you couldn't go to your Chinese medicine practitioner who had studied this plant for years and be prescribed the plant. And it, it seemed, it just to me, it's, it's, it just represents kind of the mentality of pharmaceutical sciences. You can continue to take these things, even though we know they have 33 listed and tested side effects. And even though people are literally dying from taking this, and we know today that yatrogenic causes, which are doctor-induced causes, is the leading cause of death. It's the leading cause. People are dying more from doctor-induced deaths than anything else, which means they're taking the wrong drugs or they're taking too many drugs or they're going in for surgery and they're not coming out of surgery. It's a crazy system. And even when these drugs are, are known to be killing people or causing violent side effects, they're not taken off the market. See, and like, I, I think like the prime example, like the, the part that just makes me rent for hours is taking, you know, like any one of these drugs prevent depression and like one of the number one side effects is depression or anxiety like like the like the like how do we live in that world and how did we create a world where that is okay you know that's like going into like the doctor and saying like you know or going somewhere i should say they're going somewhere and saying my left leg is broken and to fix that they break your right leg balance you out yeah. Yeah. You're depressed and we're going to give you a drug that might cause you to be suicidal. But it's it's unfortunately it's a a liability type of medicine where the doctors are required in essence to do something. And if they don't do something and then you have a negative outcome, then they're liable for it. Funny story. And I won't name the person, but he's my dad. <laughs> when I was in, um, when I was studying Chinese herbal medicine, my mom phoned me and said, your dad's had a heart attack. And a long story short, he was in the, he had been checked into the hospital. They had run their test. It turned out that he wasn't having a heart attack, but they weren't sure what was going on because he had symptoms of a heart attack. And so they wanted to treat him for something. And it turned out he had had some dental work done recently and they thought maybe he had a tooth infection because one of his symptoms was uh, dizziness and another one was hallucination. So there were some, some head-based symptoms. And so they said, well, let's give him some antibiotics. And I knew for a fact he had just come off a, a series of antibiotics because of the surgery that he had just had. And none of this sat well with me. I was thousands of kilometers away, though I'm not even in the same country. And so I talked to my mom and I said, okay, mom, Walk me through it. Tell me what happened today. I said, well, he woke up this morning. Uh, he made his oatmeal as he normally does. Uh, and, and when he was putting his 
spices on his oatmeal, his cinnamon and his nutmeg and whatever else he might have been putting on, the lid to the nutmeg container popped off and he poured an entire jar of nutmeg into his oatmeal. Now, my dad's not very kitchen savvy, so I guess he decided he didn't want to make more oatmeal or I don't know what the reason was, but he ate the oatmeal with several grams of nutmeg. About an hour later, when he got to work, he started to hallucinate. He started to have chest pains. He started to have dizziness. He got rushed to the hospital because he must have been having a heart attack. And as she's telling me the story, I'm thinking, nutmeg. And the reason nutmeg stood out to me is because, obviously, it was something unusual that had happened in his day. Well, he ate a whole jar of nutmeg, and then an hour later, he starts to get symptoms. And then I started to really think about nutmeg, and I was studying it in Chinese medicine. It's called rhodoco. And nutmeg has an active component called myristicin, and myristicin is a known hallucinogenic agent. And kids in high school, I later learned, are abusing nutmeg to try to get little hallucinogenic highs. And so I looked in my textbook. Sure enough, nutmeg is very toxic in high doses, toxic enough to kill somebody, actually. And so I phoned up my mom. I said, Mom, he's not having a heart attack. He doesn't have an inner ear infection. I said, get him out of the hospital and give him lots of water. Just flush his system. And I said, he overdosed on nutmeg. And so she went and told the doctor, and the doctor thought she was absolutely nuts. And she's like, well, my son, he's studying <laughs> Eastern herbal medicine. <laughs> of course, he didn't want to hear any of that. And I said, well, mom, tell him that he overdosed on myristicin. Maybe he'll understand that because that's the chemical derivative. Still, he gave it absolutely zero credit and wanted my dad to go on another course of antibiotics because he had to do something. And... It really just struck me as how broken our system is because they had not once asked my dad about his day. It took my mom about a minute to get to the point where I, where a little alarms went off in my head and I thought, oh, that's interesting. That could be the cause of things here. Let me look into that. Even when someone is there saying, look, it's nutmeg that's causing these hallucinations, the doctor didn't want to believe it. Yeah, I know. That's just the, the investigation, right? Like you not even like, you know, coach to be able to walk down those avenues, not having the time to be able to to do it and then wanting to immediately just discredit that it could be something like that because it's more, why should it be that? Because I can't actually give a prescription to be able to counter that. Like I can't give a prescription give for a water. Prescription, yeah. 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 And it wasn't in their education. Yeah. And so if it's not in their education, I guess it's something that they're just not willing to consider. Yeah. Unless it is a specialist in their field who is higher up than them or, or more deeply studied in a particular area of internal medicine or whatever it might be. But not if it's on the fringe, not if it's a complementary therapy. There's, and, I, and I don't want to say that as a blanket policy. There are, my physician is a great friend of mine, and he's absolutely more than open to, to complementary therapies. Um, and there are many physicians now who are, and we have some instructors on our faculty who are both medical doctors and acupuncturists or nutritionists or whatever it might be. And there's a lot, there's, that's a very encouraging trend that I'm seeing and that patients are actually seeking out now practitioners who have those backgrounds, those blended backgrounds. Yeah. And I think that like, to me, like just knowing, like, like, I think that's probably, um, 
the biggest light at the end of the tunnel is knowing that like people are like integrating their knowledge, you know, between like, you know, like Western and Eastern, because obviously there's benefit to both of them, you know, but just not looking like it has to be like one or the other. It's like, you know, saying, well, yeah, I'm conservative in some issues and I'm liberal in others, you know, like where's the party that represents me? It would be great just to call it medicine yeah. and to treat it as medicine and use whatever tools seem to be best in that given situation and as Hippocrates says are going to do no harm yeah and unfortunately that's just not the way that that it's done yeah absolutely well why don't you uh why don't you throw some like uh some web addresses social media handles and all that kind of stuff and like let people know if they're interested how they can reach out how they can find more information on you guys and uh and yeah like any any last little bits that you want to throw out there yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I'll start with uh, Pacific Rim College, and that is at PacificRimCollege.com. Our campus is in Victoria, British Columbia, which is on Vancouver Island, uh, which for anyone who's not been here is is one of the most beautiful places on earth. And we also have an online college, Pacific Rim College Online. It can also be found at the same uh, web domain. And through the online college, we are adding more and more curriculum that will allow people to explore holistic medicines, uh, not so much to be practitioners, but for their own personal development and use with their family and friends. And uh, we're strong, strong uh, advocates of clinical training. And so most of our our all of our practitioner-based programs where people are studying to actually be practitioners do involve extensive clinical training. Uh, but the online curriculum is an incredible way for people to be exposed to various forms of complementary therapies uh, from wherever they happen to be. And we do have all the social media handles. I don't know what they are, but they're all linked on our website at pacificrimcollege.com. <laughs> Scroll down to the bottom of the page like all the rest of them and click on them and people can figure it out from there. Exactly. It's probably there. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, just uh, to be able to highlight that too, like what you just said is, you know, like when I was on your guys' website, I actually found, you know, because with your online courses, like not only do you have like a vast amount of courses, but like they're pretty reasonably priced too. Like they're not, nothing that looks like it breaks the budget. School, we and what we've actually done with the college as well is we don't like to do the same thing that's already being done. Uh, we like to break the mold. And if you read about our programs on our website, you'll find that most of our, mm, at least half of our programs, are the most comprehensive in the world. And that's that's our intention when we set out to create a program. Is we set out to create something that is not being done, to do it at a level that we feel truly does it justice. And with our online college, what we, we, we hesitated for many years before starting our online school because there's so many other people who are doing this and there are so many who are not doing it to the level that we feel it should be, uh, which in, in the end became our doorway to enter into it because we, we realized if it's going to be done, let's make sure it's being done properly. And so all of our material, all of our courses are studio filmed, professionally edited. Uh, we, we bring in the best instructors in the world to film these. And they are akin to watching 
an enjoyable production on Netflix as opposed to watching a Skype conversation, which many of the courses unfortunately are on other platforms. And so we wanted to create a user experience where people not only had access to the information, but it was enjoyable for them to learn that information. And we're really kind of just at the at kind of at the beginning uh, of the curriculum that we're going to be able to offer in our online program. We're currently finishing up the filming of an online herbal program that is going to, I, I feel, be the best that is available anywhere. And uh, that's due to launch, I believe, in January. And that will be our first program in the online domain. Right now, we have only individual courses. So we're really excited to see what comes of that one. Um, but yeah, they are, as you said, they, we try to make them accessible. So the price, we're trying to figure out where that, um, that good price point is for them to be reasonable for people to, to be able to afford. Yeah. And at the same time, we need to maintain the quality that they are. They're not cheap for us to produce. I bet. I bet. Well, thank you, Ty. I really appreciate it. It's just been, uh, it's an absolute honor. And, you know, and I know somebody who's, you know, obviously as busy as you and, you know, with everything that's on your plate and stuff, I just, I wanted you to know that like, it's it's been an absolute honor and I appreciate you taking your time out. It really means a lot to me. Thank you, Blake. Well, I really enjoyed it. And I, I, uh, congratulate you on what you're doing and what you're what you're accomplishing with this podcast and it's definitely an honor to be on the show thank you so much thank you